a Bible with you, I encourage you to turn in it to Nehemiah chapter 11. This passage, um, the passage we're going to look at is chapter 11 and half of chapter 12, so that's a whole bunch of text. Let me just say a few things before we read from the passage. Nehemiah 11 and 12 might rank right up there as one of the most skipped over passages in the Bible as you go through your reading plan. (laughs) Because it's almost entirely a list of names. 62 verses of people and places which are hard to pronounce from 2,400 years ago in the history of Israel. It's not readily apparent why this makes any difference in our lives today. But an analogy might help here. Every 10 years, a census is taken in our country. And what they ask is your names and your occupation and maybe your background that kind of thing. And why do they take the census? Because it gives us a little window into what our society is like. Who lives here? What what are they like? There's, There's characteristics of a society that come forth out of something as like boring to read as a census. But yet there's, some, there's something important about that. So also with this passage, the names, the places, their descriptions tell us what kind of a society God was reconstructing from the returned exiles in Israel. When they were in captivity in Babylon, God had said through the prophet Jeremiah, I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. That's from Jeremiah 29, 14. So the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are a fulfillment of God's promise to do that. I'm going to bring you back to Jerusalem. I am going to restore your fortunes. I'm going to recreate the society that you were supposed to be. And so this, these two chapters is like the census. It's the glimpse into God's renewed society. And in the details, there are traits about what God is doing, what He intends to do, what He will complete doing in the life to come. So before we go into it, let me just pray, and then we'll, we'll talk about it. All Scripture is inspired by God. Thank you, Lord. Even Nehemiah 11 and 12. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And so we ask that you fulfill those goals for it this morning. And give us the joy of discovering gems in the dirt, so to speak, in places that are unexpected. Feed our souls on all of your great glory and your purposes for us through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. We'll walk through three traits of God's renewed society that are found in this passage. The first is a commitment to the purposes of God. And we're going to see that in chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Let's read this. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem... 
and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. <clears throat> now, what's the significance of this lottery? to have 10% of the people move into Jerusalem? Well, for that, we need to remember where we are in the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. At this point, about 100 years has passed since the first wave of returned exiles came to Jerusalem and Judea, the surrounding area. In that time, they built their offer, their, their altar for sacrifices. They built the temple as a central place of worship. Eventually, they got around to building the defensive wall all around the city. That's what Nehemiah was there leading that project. They just recently finished it. They all just recently recommitted themselves to the Lord in, in a covenant. <clears throat> now, all that's left is to move in. Because as we learned in chapter 7, hardly anybody actually lived in the city at this point, even after 100 years. Chapter 7, verse 4 says, The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Most people still lived out in the country. But that's not all that God had in mind in His promise to bring them back to this place not just to be out in the country. He meant for the city to be lived in. And why did he want that? It's because of what the city of Jerusalem represented. In verse 1, it is called Jerusalem, the holy city. Meaning this is a city set apart by God. It's the city where God's holy presence would be made known in a unique way. Psalm 48 describes Jerusalem as beautiful in elevation, the joy of all the earth, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God himself, God has made himself known as a fortress. So Jerusalem was to be the model of what it looks like for God to rule as king on earth in the midst of his people, where they would be joyful in his presence and spread joy to all the nations, emanating out from this hub, this focal point, which was this holy city, Jerusalem. That's where the broken world was going to be remade from that place. Renewed human society would be on display there. But it had fallen into ruin. And now, after the rebuilding has all finished for most of it, it's time for people to move in. It's time to make this again the city of the great king where his rule will be known and joy will spread from there outwards. So, lots were cast to bring one out of ten people from the countryside to live in the city. But here's the catch. Here's what leads to the observation about the commitment to the purposes of God. Moving into Jerusalem involves sacrifice. It wasn't going to be easy to make this once again the city of the great king, the joy of all the earth. And we get a hint of that in verse 2. It says, The people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. In other words, a lot of people were not willing. <laughs> they were glad that some people were willingly offering to go in. 
They all agreed this place needs to have people in it, but not everybody wanted to. Not everybody was willing, but the ones who were willing, they were like, yay, <laughs> go for it. Why weren't they willing? It's because moving into Jerusalem meant, for one thing, starting from scratch. You had to rebuild a house to live in, number one. They weren't rebuilt yet. No houses had been rebuilt. But it was also because you would have to leave the land of your inheritance. Remember, they've been there a hundred years now. They've got homesteads. They got farms. Uh, they have an inheritance. They live on their own property in other places for a hundred years. Who wants to leave the idyllic country life to move into a ruined city? And start all over again. I mean, you're going to have to depend on the people who still live in the country to raise your food and your animals to feed you, to pay you for whatever service you perform in the city. So you're, you're, you're making yourself vulnerable now. I mean, even today, we kind of like the idea of being out in the country, you know. And Yeah, I heard a woo, right? Like, get out of the craziness. Let's go out into the country. Who wants to move back in? Now, some people do. Some people like the city. But you got to remember the context back in those days. This city didn't have Home Depot uh, or Best Buy or restaurants or nice parks or any of the things that we like about city life. This was a place where you were going to have to work and make it something. That involves sacrifice. Most of all, though, Living in Jerusalem required that you defend the city from outsiders. That was the whole point of building the wall. It was a defensive wall. Remember all the opposition that they had encountered all the way through Ezra and Nehemiah. There was always somebody trying to stop this project. Well, those people haven't gone away. You're going to have to defend this city. It's like signing up for the draft. This wasn't a lottery where you win a million dollars. This was signing up to the draft, this, this casting of lots. Um, and that's why when you read further in verses 6, 8, 14, you see this one character quality that's highlighted for the people that moved in. Verse 6, the sons of Perez who lived in Jerusalem were 468 valiant men. Verse 8, of the sons of Benjamin were men of valor. Verse 16, even of the priests, they were mighty men of valor. You're going to have to go in there and defend this place, along with building it and making yourself vulnerable and giving up your farms. Not so easy to do. It, it involves sacrifices. And that's where we get this idea of commitment to the purposes of God. God had an agenda for this city. He will rule in their midst. He will make his people joyful. He will spread joy and blessing to all the earth through this city. But it's going to cost you to be a part of that. You're going to have to be committed to it. You're going to have to give something up. And that speaks to us today because this is what God has called us into. As we've been called to follow Jesus who is our example and Savior in this very thing. Jesus also left the countryside to go into Jerusalem. He set his face to go there, to establish the kingdom of God, to bring joy to all the earth. 
But he didn't do it by going to live there. He did it by going to die there, bearing our sins, bearing our punishment on the cross. He sacrificed himself so that all who put their faith in him as Savior might experience forgiveness, might experience peace with God, might experience the joy that is only known in relationship with him. Revelation 21.2 says there's a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Jesus went into the old Jerusalem to die so that he could bring people into the new Jerusalem. And as followers of Jesus, he calls us to be committed to that same purpose of God. He gives us a part to play in bringing joy that's available in Christ. And it takes sacrifice. God may not call you to do the hardest thing in the world, <coughs> like what it cost people to move into Jerusalem. Nine out of ten of them didn't. But they were all in agreement that God's holy purposes should be realized. They blessed those who moved in. They were all of one accord. This has to be done, but not everybody was called to do the hardest thing. Some were doing the supportive things, but they were all one in this. The equivalent for us is this. You might not be called to be a missionary who pulls up roots and goes to the hardest places of the world, or someone who works in a ministry to the homeless on Colfax Avenue, or somebody who leaves their job to be a, a Christian worker, a pastor. You might not be called to do those things, but you are called to want those things to, to happen and to somehow be a participant in them happening and to use your own gifts and abilities in your sphere because we're all on the same team in this. We all want to be committed to God's purposes in the world to bring the joy to all the earth. So we support missionaries, and we plant churches, and we support pastors and workers who are bringing the good news of Jesus to the world, and we use our gifts and our opportunities that each of us has to make known the reality of Christ in our little corner of the world. So whether that's teaching your children about Jesus or being an obvious Christian in your workplace, or supporting the local church with your giving. We're all called to commitment to God's purposes in the world. Their purposes for joy, the joy of all peoples. Paul said to the Corinthians, we are workers with you for your joy. <laughs> it's what we want for people. We want it for ourselves. But it takes commitment and sacrifice. So, Thank you for your sacrifice. We know that every Sunday meeting, every discipleship group, every special event that we pull off involves sacrifice. It involves people joining together, committed to the purposes of God. We think this meeting is important enough that we should go to it and that it should be well prepared and people should get ministered to. All of that involves your sacrifice. Well, that's your participation in the great works of God. So thank you for that. Thank you so much. Well, let's continue. So far we've covered two verses out of 62. <laughs> the rest of them are the census, to use that analogy. 
We won't read through the whole list of names, but we'll make another observation which comes from several places that we will read. The second trait of God's renewed society is the dignity of every individual. The dignity of every individual. If we look at the list of names that run all the way through chapter 12, verse 26, two things stand out. First of all, there are no celebrities here. There is none of what we would call spiritual heroes or even famous people of the Bible, at least not until the very end, 1226, where we, it mentions Nehemiah the governor and Ezra the priest and scribe. The two books that we've been studying are named after those leaders, but all the names up to that point are obscure. Here's a sampling from verses 10 to 14. This is people that have been moved, who have moved into Jerusalem. Of the priests, Jediah, the son of Joiarib, Jachin, Sariah, the son of Hilkiah, son of Meshullam, son of Zadok, son of Marioth, son of Ahitub, ruler of the house of God, and their brothers who did the work of the house, 822. Anadiah, the son of Jeroham, son of Pelaliah, son of Amzi, son of Zechariah, son of Pashur, son of Malchijah, and his brothers, heads of the father's houses, 242. And Amashai, the son of Azarel, son of Azai, son of Meshillamoth, son of Immer, and their brothers, mighty men of valor, 128. Their overseer was Zabdiel, the son of Hagadolim. And it goes on for many more verses. Now, I'm pretty sure you won't find any of these names in a baby naming book today. <laughs> you know, we like to name our kids after somebody that we admire, respect, maybe a celebrity, but I've never met an Amzi or an Immer or a Zabdiel. You probably haven't either. No one is singing the praises of these people. We wouldn't even know they existed if they weren't written down in these chapters they were ordinary people who just did the hard thing of moving into Jerusalem. And that's exactly what makes this list so encouraging. Because God knows their names. And He wants us to know their names. Ordinary people who lived 2,400 years ago matter to God. They matter enough that we should still hear their names today and remember, they were among God's chosen ones as part of this new society that he was rebuilding. There's even an exact head count. We read numbers. 822 who did the work of the house. 242 heads of fathers' houses. 128 mighty men of valor. Each person is counted no one is forgotten. Everyone's recognized. Every person matters in God's society. And that's the case for us also today. We are counted. We are known. We are seen. We matter to God. Jesus described his ministry as a shepherd leading his sheep, and he said this in John 10, 3, the, shep the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. <laughs> I think one of the hardest things for a person to bear 
I think, would be the thought that no one knows you, no one sees you, no one cares, no, you don't matter. People don't even know your name. But God says, I know your name. I see you. I know you. You matter to me. And then to this one and to that one, by His grace, He calls us by name to know Him and find security and forgiveness and joy in that relationship. He calls us by name and He leads us out, leads us out into glory. So here's an encouragement for you if you're a Christian. You haven't received salvation the way checks were sent to all the taxpayers during the pandemic. You know, like as long as you filed your 1040, you got a check in the mail. They don't know who you are, but you receive something good anyway, right? That is not how we receive salvation. God points to you and to you and to you. And by name, he says, you are mine. You I will bring into my kingdom. You I will lead out of this mess and into glory. When he died on the cross, it was to bear the transgressions for the many. That is true. There will be a multitude in heaven. But also on the cross, he bore your specific sins. He had you in mind when he died. God the Son has the capacity to know all the names and all the sins so that on the cross, every single one... Every sin is accounted for, and every person that he died for will be let out. Jesus said to Lazarus in the tomb, Lazarus, come forth. He says your name. <laughs> come forth. Rise. He says to you, dead in your trespasses and sins, live, and you're born again. That's our God. Let me make another observation under this category of the dignity of every individual. It's the dignity of our ordinary occupations. In chapter 11, we have references to what many of the people did as part of their contribution to society. Here's a few pulled from different places. Now, to be sure, there were those who led something, the people that were more prominent than others. In verse 1, there are leaders who live in Jerusalem. Verse 3, there are chiefs of the province who also lived in Jerusalem. We read in verse 9 of an overseer of the sons of Benjamin. In verse 14, an overseer of the priests. Verse 22, an overseer of the Levites. In verse 24, there's a man named Pethahiah who was at the king's side in all matters concerning the people. So he was like a representative in the court of King Artaxerxes who's speaking on behalf of of those who are back in Jerusalem. So those are the leaders. God's society has leadership. That's an essential part of a functioning society. I mean, the alternative is what? Anarchy, right? Well, that's a curse, not a blessing. You just read the book of Judges to find out what does it look like, what happens when every man does what is right in his own eyes and there is no king in Israel. You just read Judges and it just goes down, down into the depths. That's what anarchy will get you. Leadership, godly leadership, God's leadership will get you towards blessing. 
So that's a part of it for sure. However, most people didn't have those positions. There were other occupations here and many more people that had them. And they seem ordinary, but God wants us to know about them. Verse 16 speaks about the outside work of the house of God. And that's carried out by the Levites. You might say a big part of their job was groundskeeping and building maintenance. <laughs> now, it was a very special building. It was the temple. These are Levites. They're the ones, that's the tribe that's given the task of maintaining the worship life of the community and the temple. Uh, but still, they were groundskeepers. I mean, they had to clean things up. They had to fix things. That was part of their outside work. Verse 19 speaks of the gatekeepers who kept watch at the gates. That would be the gates of the temple complex. So think security guards. <laughs> That's what they're doing. Twice mentioned are the fields of the inheritance where people lived in 25 and 30. That assumes farming was going on. People were raising cows and other things. 35 mentions those who lived in Ono, the Valley of Craftsmen. So people who lived there were known for working in the trades. They were blacksmiths. They were carpenters. They were all sorts of things working in crafts. And I really like this reference in 23, which says there was a fixed provision for the singers. <laughs> so some people were paid so they could sing, probably leading worship. But I have to think maybe this is the beginning of an endowment for the arts or something. You know, like supporting your local starving artist musician. Maybe that's where this originates. They had a provision for the singers. But why, why do we linger on all these details? It's a reminder that your ordinary occupation, done with a commitment to God's purposes, has dignity. It's part of what pleases God. It's part of how He's bringing goodness into the world. It's important. It's valued in God's purposes for man. That goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. What was Adam called to do? In a perfect world, completely wonderful, operating in harmony with God, he was put in the garden to work it and keep it. You might say his first job was a gardener. <laughs> That's ordinary work. Here's the takeaway for you and me. We tend to think that a job is very important if you work for NASA, but not if you work for Walmart. But in God's society, all work is dignified if it is an offering to the Lord. Colossians 3, 23 and 24 says, Whatever you do, work heartily. Whatever you do. Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. That's in the context of slaves and masters, but our equivalent would be the employer-employee relationship. Sometimes that feels like slavery. But whatever it is that you're doing, if you're doing it to the Lord, know you will receive an inheritance. You're serving Christ. You're not just serving your boss. You're not just doing your job. Christ is your ultimate boss, and you're doing it for Him. If it's for His glory, for His purposes, and that makes it matter, that makes it dignified, it makes it worth it. And there's a reward, an inheritance. Even if you don't have a good retirement plan, you have a great inheritance. Because Jesus gives it to us through faith. 
and then he adds rewards to our faithful labor. Bottom line, in God's renewed society, the ordinary individual is dignified, known by name, and elevated in their contribution to the community. And we can already start experiencing that if we just have that picture in, my, in our minds. This, this hiddenness of God's reality all around us and his, his purposes for this world, which are starting already in each heart that's submitted to him. Uh, doesn't that sound like a world we want to live in? Well, we will have that world eventually, completely, in the world to come. Let's look at one more trait of God's renewed society. I found it hard to put this one into words, but we'll call it an identification with all God's people. An identification with all God's people. By that I mean an awareness that believers are member of a community that's bigger than us. We're part of something big. Yes, the individual matters, but we should never forget we're part of a bigger whole, an entire people chosen by God's grace to be in a special relationship with Him throughout history and throughout the world. The returned exiles were aware of this bigger picture. And we see that especially in chapter 12. So let's read the first 11 verses. Well, most of the first 11 verses and then we'll comment on those. There, these are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua. Sariah, Jeremiah, Ezra, Amariah, Meluk, Hattu, Shechaniah, Rehum, Merimoth, Ido, Genethoi, Abijah, Majimim, Madiah, Bilgah, Shemaiah, Joyarib, Jediah, Salu, Amok, Hilkiah, Jedediah. These were the chiefs of the priests and of their brothers in the days of Jeshua. Skipping to verse 10. And Jeshua was the father of Joachim, and Joachim the father of Eliashib, Eliashib the father of Joida, Joida the father of Jonathan, and Jonathan the father of Jadua. And then it goes on for more all the way up to verse 26. Now, what is this list? In short, this is a record of six generations of the priesthood. From the time of the first returned exiles under Zerubbabel to the time of Nehemiah the governor, which was a period of about 100 years. It's a historical record of priests who came before them. And specifically mentioned is the lineage of the high priest, starting with Jeshua all the way down to his great-great-great-grandson. In fact, it's a continuation of an earlier list of the priesthood in 1 Chronicles chapter 6, which traced the priestly line from Aaron, the high priestly line from Aaron, the very first one, all the way to the exile in Babylon. And now this picks up where that left off. So they have this complete record going all the way back to Aaron of how there's been a high priest in every generation. All the way up to today, that, to, that was then today, the time of Nehemiah. Now, it was very important that they did this. There was, this isn't in there, but randomly. It was important for Israel to record this lineage because of the significance of the priesthood for the nation. More than anything else, what separated Israel from all the nations was the fact that God dwelt in their midst in the temple, and he could only be approached by the priests 
who went inside the holy place and once a year by the chief priest or the high priest who would go into the most holy place with the blood of a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. So the priesthood is this remembrance, this this visible reminder. We are this chosen nation. God entered into a covenant with us. God dwells in our midst, and the temple and the priesthood is all the way that that God can dwell with us. There's atonement for sin. He will be with us. So it's a reminder of their history, their calling as the people of God in a covenant relationship. There's continuity going back generations. They remembered, we're a nation chosen by grace, called to be blessed and to be a blessing. And even though centuries have gone by where we were wicked and God cast us out of the land and we went into exile, even even despite that, God is still with us. We still have the priesthood. There's still atonement for sin. God hasn't abandoned us. We're His people. And they know that because they can look back and see his faithfulness despite their unfaithfulness. We also have that kind of continuity with the past. We have a great high priest in Jesus Christ who offered the one sacrifice that atones for our sins. And he ever lives to intercede. (laughs) His people are no longer defined by a physical nation called Israel, but by those who trust in Israel's promised Savior and Messiah and great high priest, Jesus Christ. It's in Him that we have access to God. It's in Christ that we have atonement for sin. It's in Him, in Christ, that we are connected to everyone who has looked forward to the hope of Christ from the beginning to today. We have continuity, we have solidarity with, we have connection with everyone who is connected to Jesus. It's bigger than us. 1 Peter 2, 9 says of all believers, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. God has chosen and called us out of this world to belong to Him. And everybody that belongs to Him is a part of this amazing thing. Everyone's put their trust in Israel's Messiah, who is Christ. So like the Israelites who listed their spiritual heritage, we also stand in a long line of faithful saints who have gone before us. We're part of something bigger Hebrews 12, 22 and 23 says, We have come to, and this is talking to present-day believers back in the first century and to us, we have come to the heavenly Jerusalem and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Those are all people who have gone before us in faithfulness, who have been welcomed into the eternal glories already and are waiting for us to cross the threshold to join them in it. But they've gone before us. We're part of this great assembly. And if we remember that, it lends a certain stability to our faith. We remember we're part of the renewed humanity that God has been building for a very long time and which he will build until the end of this world. That renewed humanity is the universal church that Jesus is building. It endures forever. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. We need to remember that when we feel small in the world. 
when we feel like the, the church doesn't matter, that it's fading away, that it's become irrelevant, that what's happening now where we live is the sum total of Christianity. But then we pull back the curtain of Hebrews 12, and we see we're a part of something big, something eternal, an assembly of those enrolled in heaven, all called by name to enter into the joy of our Master, Jesus Christ. So it's helpful to read church history once in a while. <laughs> or biographies about people that God has used, God has saved, God has miraculously done things with. So we get out of our immediate moment and look up and see the big picture. What has God been doing in the world from day one? What has He promised to do until the final day? We're within that big arc. Our part might look small, insignificant, hopeless, but the big picture is entirely hopeful. It's destiny. We are destined for glory as God's chosen people. So we need to look up once in a while and see that. So... Grab your church history, a good church history. I can give you recommendations. Grab a biography of some ancient saint, just anybody, and just get out of our immediate moment and remember the bigger picture. It would be helpful, I think, to our souls. Let me just close with this. What do we do with these glimpses of a new society, God's society? How will it affect what we do this week, this year, this decade? Two things, I think. Where we have opportunity, let's bring the world a taste of God's kingdom into our broken society. Believers in Christ are described as salt and light. That's a preserving influence. That's an illuminating influence for good. Let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's from Matthew 5.16. What that mainly looks like is you... And me, faithfully, honestly, and effectively working at our job and interacting with those around us as a Christ follower. Your ordinary life and work done in commitment to God's purposes, that's a taste of the new Jerusalem, the renewed humanity to come. So our task is just to be faithful Christians in the places where God has put us. Changing the world is not our task. That's God's task. And that won't happen until Jesus returns. But then it will happen. He will entirely transform the world. But meanwhile, we have something more manageable to do. <laughs> Be faithful where we are with the gifts and opportunities that we have. Second, let's commit to building God's renewed society in the one place on earth where it is supposed to be seen in its glorious reality. That's the local church. It's in the local church. It's, it's here where the coming kingdom of God should be seen. It's here where God's purposes of redeeming a fallen people are to be front and center. It's here where we're willing to sacrifice for the honor of His name and the spread of His gospel it's here where we, we redignify and we value every single individual. 
And it's here where we know ourselves to be part of this great assembly, where, where we're in the local church tasting what the, the reality of the universal church. It's the, it's the local embodiment of this great big thing. So do you want to make a difference in the world? Do you want to see the kingdom come and God's will be done? Follow the Lord in your workplace, your home, your community, and build up His church. That way the world can have a glimpse of the renewed society that we all want, but that only Jesus can give us. May God help us to do that. Let's pray. Lord, we do stand in this line of the redeemed from early on, thousands of years, those who put their trust in the coming Savior and those who put their trust trust in the Christ who came. We thank you that we're part of something that's unshakable, something glorious. So give us the big picture, keep it in our minds. Let us go forth, Lord, and be, be those emissaries, those examples, those people who are salt and light in the world. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.